mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I've been struggling with Matthew chapter 11, the entire thing, for a little over a week now, because the first half of the chapter is Sunday's reading. So kind of mixed up in all out of order this week, the way the church calendar falls. And there's so much packed into Matthew chapter 11 that it's kind of hard for me as I look at it to know, what do I look at tonight? What do I look at Sunday? What should be the focus? I think tonight, what I determined was most important for us were two questions. Two questions I want you to think about up front now, but that we won't really get to until towards the end of the sermon. Because we're going to have to set them up first. And the two questions are, what time is it, and what music is playing? It's going to be our focus tonight as we consider our Lord's words concerning John the Baptist. As I said, the first half of this passage, leading up to where we started tonight, we have on Sunday. So just a very brief overview. John is in prison. He's awaiting execution. And I believe, we'll talk a little bit more about this Sunday, I do believe he does have some doubts. Why am I sitting in jail if you're the Messiah? So he sent his disciples to Jesus. Jesus gives them an answer about what they've seen and heard, and he sends them back. And then after they've left, he now addresses everybody else that's still left and talks about John the Baptist. But he starts with this. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there was not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Some people take that verse to be a specific reference about Christ, that Christ is talking about himself, that he is the one who is greater than he. And that's possible, but I think Jesus' point goes beyond himself. I think Jesus' point is that whether it's John the Baptist, or whether it's you or me, the thing that matters, the most important thing, is that we live under God's reign. That is more specifically that we have faith, that Christ is the King, that He is our Savior, that He is our Lord and Redeemer. And the one who has faith in that is greater than even John the Baptist. And in fact, the ironic twist of it all is, as John sits there in prison and receives the comfort Christ sends him, and has faith in that, he's also part of that greater than as well. For John the Baptist to die apart from the faith all that he did in proclaiming the way of the Messiah and preparing his way would mean nothing for him. He has no faith in Christ. So Jesus' point for all of us tonight, which I think sets up everything else we're going to talk about, is that the thing that we need above all else is faith in who Christ is. As we'll see on Sunday, the driving point behind the entire chapter from beginning to end is how will Israel respond to their Messiah? Now he's actually there among them. And for us tonight, it's no different. How will we respond to the Messiah now that he's come, done all these wonderful things, died and risen again? What is our response to him? We want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And all we can do is throw ourselves at his feet and cling to him for salvation. Which is why... I take a little bit different view on the second, this next verse, verse 12, than many modern commentators. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, our fathers in the faith 
most of them, including Lutheran and early church fathers, they tend to take this as referring to our faith, storming the gaze of heaven, taking heaven by violence. That is our faith. Grabs hold of it and won't let go. And I believe they're right. It could be a reference to the church suffering persecution, but it doesn't seem to fit the context as well, besides John suffering in prison. And elsewhere in Luke's gospel, he says that as John preached, the people were pressing into the kingdom. That is, as they heard the word of God, they couldn't wait to get in. Right? It's like they were storming the gates of heaven, wanting to be there to receive all of God's wonderful gifts in Christ Jesus. So I think verse 12 is a continuation of what Jesus says in verse 11. You want to be great? You want to be in the kingdom of heaven? Here's how you do it. You storm the gates of heaven with your faith. You grab hold of Jesus. You don't let go no matter what. Right? You hear God's law and it comes to you and it crushes you and shows you your sin. And you're beat down by it and weighed down by it. And then you hear the glorious good news of the gospel. And you say, yeah, I want that. And no one can take it from me. When I taught the third, fourth, and fifth grade class on Tuesday, and I'm talking about what Jesus has done for us from his second article of the creeds, and one of the kids at the end said, that's amazing. Exactly. That's it. It's amazing. And so we should do everything we can to get it. Right? Think about the people in Africa who can walk hours, even half a day, to go hear the gospel preached to them. People who travel miles upon miles by foot so they can receive Christ's body and blood in their mouths. Think about the Christians suffering persecution, knowing that if they gathered together, they could be shot down by the police, and yet they still do it because they hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what it looks like to take the kingdom of heaven by violence, to take it by force, to believe that apart from that you have nothing. And then we get to perhaps what seems a little odd. Jesus says, but to what then shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance We mourned for you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus compares his generation, and I would say any generation, any group of people that reacts this way is the same. What's his analogy? What's the comparison? Jesus says the people that John preached to, that Jesus preached to, that many pastors today preach to, they don't like what they're hearing. And so they say, look, we played for the flute for you, and we wanted you to dance, and you didn't do it. We sang a mournful dirge, like a funeral lament, and you didn't lament with us. You didn't do it the way we wanted you to do it. You didn't tell us what we wanted to hear. 2 Timothy 4 says in the last days that people heap up for themselves teachers that itch their ears, that is, that tell them what they want to hear. That rather than preaching God's law and God's gospel, 
Rather than coming to them with God's gracious promises of what he actually says in his word, they change it to fit the crowds. Right? They try to appease the people. Oh, you don't want to hear that this is sinful? Well, then I won't preach against that. Oh, you don't want to hear that Jesus had to die a bloody, gruesome death for your sins? Well, then we won't talk about the atonement. You don't like that? Fine. Then we'll talk about these other things instead. That's what Jesus points is here. And so what happens? So John comes, living a life of an ascetic, right? He's, he's dressed funny. He's dressed in camel hair. He has a strange diet. He doesn't fit in with the regular people. And they say, look at that guy. He's got a demon. He's insane. Jesus comes, eating and drinking. And say he's a glutton and a wine giver. Friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now let's look at that first part, because it's really important. If you don't know the Old Testament law, it just kind of flies over your heads. Why specifically say that Jesus is a glutton and a wine giver? A glutton and a drunkard? It's because in Old Testament law, if you were a son who was a glutton and a drunkard, the punishment was death. They're saying Jesus deserves to die for what he's doing. So Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and sinners, with those wicked people, and the Pharisees say, he deserves to be put to death as a glutton and a drunkard. John does the opposite, and they say he's a demon. Which means what? No matter what they do, they're not happy with him. Because John comes across too harsh, Jesus comes across too gracious and loving, and they don't like either one of them. They want nothing to do with them. They cannot stand the pure preaching of God's words. I found out yesterday that a, a faithful pastor was just forced out of his congregation recently. To get rid of him, they cut his pay to $1,000 a month. His crime was he didn't dance for them. That was his crime. He didn't dance to the tune that they were playing. He faithfully proclaimed God's words to them. And for that, he had to go. And shortly after that, I found about three other pastors who in just recent weeks, the same thing has happened. Now, I want to be clear, I don't think all pastors are innocent. There are many pastors who have done many awful things to their congregations. There are many pastors who should not be pastors, either because of what they teach and preach, or because of their lives, or because of how they've treated others, and they should be removed, yes. But what happens far too often is that faithful and godly men are forced out because they would not dance for the congregation the way they wanted them to dance. They would not submit to them. They would not say the things they wanted them to say. Instead, they preached God's holy word, both his law and his gospel. They don't like it. So they get rid of them. Jesus says, though, wisdom is justified by her children. Think about that. Wisdom, Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Right? Jesus is wisdom in the flesh. And Jesus is saying that wisdom, that he and all that he's teaching and preaching, all that John teached and all that John preached, that those things will be shown to be true in those who believe it and receive it. And those who take the kingdom of heaven by violence. That also means that on the last day, 
when you stand before God, that if you have clung to his word, if you've clung to Christ in faith, that even though all the world may mock you and say you're a moron for believing these things, that you're backwards or you're this, that, or the other thing, that on that day you'll be declared to be righteous before the entire world and everyone will see that it was wise to cling to Jesus. Which gets us to our need for wisdom. I said at the beginning that we have two questions. What time is it? And what music is playing? The problem with these questions is they require an immense amount of wisdom to really wrestle with and think through. It's one of the reasons I've been for the past couple years, really, not something I came up on my own, but I believe Pastor Fisk is the one who started pushing this, and I agree wholeheartedly with him, is that modern Christians, for us today, all of us here, should probably be reading at least one chapter from the book of Proverbs a day. Because one of the things we lack as Christians today is a knowledge of God's Word and wisdom. We do not see things the way they truly are. We do not understand what's going on around us. We're often behind. We're always playing catch-up. The world is teaching these things to us and our children, and they're brainwashing us, and we don't even realize it's happening. There are also questions we should ask for our individual lives, for our church. Is it time for mourning? Or is it a time for dancing? If you don't know what time it is, how do you know how to properly respond? Is it time to celebrate or is it time to mourn? Are you going to a party or are you going to a funeral? It matters, right? Ecclesiastes 3 says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We live in a culture that is not just post-Christian, it's anti-Christian. We are surrounded by secular humanist thinking. We are surrounded by cultural Marxism. We do not just live in a post-Christian culture, we live in an apostate culture. And it matters that we understand the difference. It's not just that they don't believe. It's that they've outright rejected Christ and the gospel in every area of life and seen how far they can go, how much they can spit in God's face before they suffer the consequences. It's not just that they're ignorant. It's that they have the truth and reject it. And it's happening in the church too. It's happening among Christians. As I've mentioned before, I don't listen to a lot of music anymore these days. I find most of it annoying, outside of 90s music, which I grew up with. But then also, I really like, as you've heard me say before, a band called Skillets. And the lead singer of that, John Cooper, has been a guy, ironically, it's a weird world we live in today, who has been very outspoken on many things happening all around us. And not only outspoken, but right. And he had a sign-up on Facebook the other day, and now I've seen it in several places in various forms. Wake up, you're at war. Wake up, you're at war. What time is it? 
is a time of unprecedented, in your lifetime, and in several lifetimes in the United States, of spiritual, we just call it what it is, demonism, right? Demonic activity, people pursuing and destroying what is true, good, and beautiful. You're at war. They've released two songs from their new album. I don't care if you ever listen to them, they may not be your style of music. But they have some great lines, and their songs on this new album are all about this issue. And one of them says this, resist a little longer death before dishonor. And I really think that, at this moment, the time we live in, has to be our mentality. That we have to resist longer. That it's not time to give in, but it's time to wake up. It's not time to sit passively by and say things like, well, yeah, there's been periods in the history of the church where it was really bad then, too, and just passively let all this wash over us. It is time to wake up, to stand up, and fight. To proclaim God's word, both law and gospel, clearly, so that our neighbors can repent, so that our leaders can repent. I do believe it is more than ever right now a time of mourning that is a time of repentance. And it does us no good to whine and complain about the time God has placed us in, because guess what? He has you here at this moment, at this time, for a reason. And we can either step up and realize what's going on and do what God has called us to do in our vocations and where He has placed us in this time and place, or we can just pretend we don't know what's going on, and hide our heads and hope it all passes over. But wisdom would say we are to act and to speak in accordance with God's words, no matter what the consequences. So I hope that all of us start to think and evaluate. What time is it? What music is playing? Now, as we get towards Christmas... Just because it's a time of mourning and a time of repentance overall does not mean that there are not times in our individual lives or our life as a church where we should, where we shouldn't celebrate. We should always have a time for celebration. Advent, the time of fasting, comes before the feast. Christmas is the time that we celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God. God gave Himself to us in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, And that is something to celebrate. It is something to rejoice in. The king has come. The king is victorious. He has come and he has rescued and redeemed you, his people. Remember what we said the context for this was, verse 11. That it's better to be under God's reign and in his kingdom than to be anywhere else. That it's better to have faith in Christ no matter what happens to you, to cling to Jesus for all forgiveness, than for anything else that matters. And so even though there's a lot to mourn, and there's a lot that we have to repent of, there's a lot we have to wake up to and realize what's going on, it doesn't mean we just sit around mourning, because Jesus has come. He's come in the flesh. He's come to redeem you. He's come to rescue you. And that, I believe, changes our outlook on everything else as well. When we mourn and repent, it's because we are hoping and looking to the fact that Jesus will raise us up, that Jesus will forgive us our sins, that Jesus will strengthen us in the faith to face whatever battles may come. And so yes, we mourn, 
And yes, there is a dirge playing right now. But in the midst of all that, we still have joy. Because Christ has come. He is coming to you right now through his word. He comes to you with his holy body and the sacraments. And we look forward, as we heard on Sunday, in hope because he's coming again. And we pray that we might have wisdom to know how to respond to what time it is. We may know what music is playing. And we may trust in Christ to see us through it all. Amen. Amen. The peace of God, past all understanding, bears your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.